I want to pray one more time. I, I feel compelled to um, pray for the Ukraine. Uh, Father, I, I'm probably not alone in sometimes feeling foolish to pray for things of a geopolitical level and scale. Um, but I guess that you would have us to help us to get over feeling foolish. But we do pray for what appears to be massing there. Uh, we pray that peace would reign. We pray that understanding might prevail. We pray for something other than the trajectory that it seems to be on um, to surface. We pray for all of those who are tempted to, uh, to search for something that is unobtainable and to think that they, they can only do that through means of war. Um, we don't know what to ask for except for peace, and so we do, and for all those that are part of it. Um, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start this morning by showing you a clip from two different stories that are 20 years apart. One of them is a true story. One of them is a could-be-very-well-true story. And they both are tied together by a single idea that actually pervades the entirety of both of the storylines. The first is John Nash. It's that movie, A Beautiful Mind. He's a brilliant mathematician from West Virginia. He shows up at Harvard, and uh, we clearly to see him have a brilliant mind, but also an afflicted mind. And in the scene you'll see, he is having a conversation with his roommate about something in particular. The other story is about a guy named Mitch Kessler. He's the head of the morning show, and he has acted like a monster but he is both coming to terms with his whole story. And as you will see, what they're both grappling with is something I think we all grapple with, maybe not at the same scale to the same degree, but with the same point. So just listen in and see if you can find that common theme. You know, half these schoolboys are already published. I cannot waste time with these classes and these books. <coughs> Memorizing the weak assumptions of lesser mortals. I need to look through to the governing dynamics. Hmm. Find a truly original idea. That's the only way I'll ever distinguish myself. It's the only way that I'll ever... Massive. Yes. Be at peace with it. Mm -hmm. You've nothing left to prove. You've, you've carved out your place in the world. And no one, and nobody can take that away. Yeah, I get that I've accomplished a lot, but it just doesn't feel like it really matters, you know? I mean, this is all fun, but is that all there is? I've let down people I love. Maybe that's my legacy. At the end, maybe that's it. You know what? Here's the thing. You are Mitch Kessler. That matters. Don't forget that. doesn't really feel like it matters. Whether it's a major award or finding some theory that reaches into the governing dynamics of all things or whether or not you're looking back, you're looking forward at what your legacy will be, everybody is in search of this thing that we customarily call whether we matter, whether we have meaning such that we don't just think of our world as a, 
or our life as a person marking time or as a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. We may not ever be conscious of it like these characters are that we've reviewed this morning, but there is something in all, every one of us where we're wondering, um, was this okay? Did I, did I live the life that I could? Did my life have meaning? And that's a very modern sense, but friends, it's not just a modern sensibility. It's as ancient as it is modern. And the reason I know that is because the focus of our passage this morning is a bunch of people asking the same question, if only in different words. They don't use the word, will I matter? But they will ask the word, am I great? Where will I find my greatness? And I think that those words are synonymous. And I think it's a question that we're all asking ourselves, and we're all investing ourselves in various directions to answer that question. So we want to look at a passage about what it means to follow Jesus. Because at some point in your following of him, you will have to grapple with the question, what is, it, what is the path to greatness? And I think we're going to consider that question with under three headings from the passage. One, that it's really a, a universal problem. Two, that there is a rather paradoxical solution to it. And three, that in that paradoxical solution, there's an essential motivation. It's a universal problem. You might even call it a dilemma from which we find a paradoxical solution that all depends on an essential motivation. We're in Mark chapter 9 and chapter 10, and we're going to read from God's Word. So I wonder if you would stand to focus your attention in that direction. Mark chapter 9, we'll start in verse 33, and then we'll hop over to 10, and I'll tell you when. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued which one another, with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his, taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And then skipping over to chapter 10, starting in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized... You will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left, it's not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. 
And Jesus called unto him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the pointed word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can, you can sit. Two texts separated by, we're not even sure how long between them, but they're both smushed together this morning for a purpose because they're both advancing the same theme. And Jesus, you might say, in both of them is having the slap my head moment because they've already been with him for a while now. They've heard a lot from him. They've seen even more in him. And yet, in these two moments, they are demonstrating their true colors about what they are not getting. Something foundational, non-negotiable in what it means to follow him has still not quite connected with them. And Jesus kind of gets into rabbi mode because he has to sit down. He has to get into Professor Keating mode from Dead Poet Society, lean in everybody. We need to talk because you've missed something profound. And he needs to address it as quickly as possible. Two scenes. One, they've all landed in Capernaum. They're just so in. And like any good loving person would, he's heard what they were talking about kind of underneath their breath. And he realizes that what they're talking about needs to be brought out into the open. And so he says, so, tell me about your conversation. And what do they do? They go, silent. Because they know they've, like, the hand got caught in the cookie jar. And finally they fess up and they say that they were talking amongst one another to wonder, so who of us is the greatest? Now they don't specify by what index they would measure the greatness. Is it that one, you know, Jesus calls on me to answer all the questions or, you know, he loves me best or I'm the most courageous or, oh yeah, well, I'm the most contemplative. Oh, well, I prayed for three hours yesterday. It doesn't say, it doesn't specify, but they're all arguing among themselves which of these is the greatest. Who of them most mattered? Scene one. Scene two, fast forward. Now it's just they're walking along. Everybody hikes. Jesus would have loved Western North Carolina because they're always hiking, right? <laughs> they're hiking. They're chatting. Up James and John say, I think this is the time. Nobody else is around. He's up front. Let's go. They move forward and they say to him, so you keep talking about this kingdom. Exciting. We're here at the ground level. We're part of your core group. Awesome. Would it be okay if we kind of had a special seat at your table when all of that goes down? Could we be, if you will, cabinet level ministers to be involved in your work? And Jesus has kind of the, the once over with them that we're going to get to a little bit later in the sermon. But when all that is done and James and John kind of file back among the crowd, the rest of the disciples are looking at him like, we heard you, we saw you, they're indignant. And they're not indignant because they're getting all virtuous with him. 
with them, I can't believe you asked that question. They're just mad that they didn't get to ask him first. They're all in on the same desire. They want to be great. And they feel like Jesus can confer to them that greatness by his own desire. And you and I, we listen to that passage and we compare it with all the other moments in which we've seen the disciples having their conversations with Jesus. And we ourselves consider our own background in following Jesus and we listen to their questions and we think, oh my gosh, how can they be so thick? Newsflash, everybody, they is us. They are only bringing out into the open what you and I don't maybe want to talk about very openly, and if we do, it's always in veiled insinuations that we'll never own up to. They is us. And what they demonstrate is what I'd like to say is the universal problem of humanity, a problem that I really think is a dilemma. And, and I, what I mean by that is this. They want greatness. And you know what? Jesus doesn't have a problem with greatness. He doesn't dunk on them for desiring to be great. You, you hear him say twice in the passage, if you would be first or whoever would be great among you, that's not his problem. The desire for greatness is something for which he has no issue, but he does get in rabbi mode for a reason. And he does get in rabbi mode with us for a reason. The desire for greatness is fine. Our problem is our means by which we seek it. The strategies we employ in order to find it, to obtain it. And the dilemma is, inasmuch as we might long for a reasonable thing, like wanting to stand out, like wanting to excel, like wanting to show that life is significant, to show it and to display it and to take comfort in it, that's not the problem. The problem is we all pursue ways in which to find it that either never obtain, or if they do, they don't last. They don't land. And we find ourselves asking the question over and over again, what's my problem? The desire for greatness is sound. Our attempts are almost all of the time invariably, fatally flawed. Look, from your birth, everything has been measured. Your height, your weight, your length, your APGAR score. Oh my gosh, I'm not even out of the womb practically and I'm already being measured by my APGAR score. And then it only gets worse. You start having quizzes and tests and exams and finals. And then down the road, you start doing interviews and, and resumes and things like that. And then finally, it's, or, you know, then you start talking about your CV, your legacy, whatever it might be. At every step of the way, there's this, you're being cultivated to measure something over and over again. And the more you're cultivated in that domain, what's happening? You're looking for ways to establish and prove and validate your greatness And, you know, look, for some of you, it's a walk in the park. You, you can show and display the way in which you excel or exceed in some way. Like, it's like you can do that in your sleep. And for the rest of us, it's a fight. Or we turn it into a fight. And I use that word fight uh, for a reason. I want to I show you a mashup of um, four different people uh, that all have to do with boxing. And you might think, well, that's a, a funny choice. But every one of these films, and, and one person in particular that you'll recognize, it's, it's no film, it's real life. Every single one of them is a fighter, or longing to be a fighter, or 
or suffering the consequences of having been a fighter. And I think the reason that these films work, it's not because the fighting is about a sport. What they're fighting in the ring is a reflection of what they're fighting outside of it. And I think what they're fighting outside of it is what you and I are all fighting outside of it, whether we ever step into a boxing ring or not, whether we ever put on gloves or not. We're all fighting for something. And in this little mashup of scenes, it won't take long, you will detect what they're searching for, what they're fighting for that I think you and I also fight for. I can't be like this, Frankie. Not after what I've done. I've seen the world. People chanted my name. I was in magazines. They used to tell me I fought to get into this world. And I'd fight my way out. I done wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. I'm gonna show you how great I am. You don't understand, I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing. for the first time in my life, see? I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. Don't let me lie here till I can't hear those people chanting no more. I am the greatest! It's not about boxing. It's being deeply afraid of not being great, of of being a bum, of, of not being somebody, of not having a room chant your name. That's got nothing to do with boxing. Boxing was a means to an end for each one of them. But every one of us has this universal dilemma. We can't just shake off the desire not to want to know that our lives matter or they have meaning or they're even great, but so often we pursue things that either don't land or backfire in our face. Jesus has no problem with the desire for greatness, but he is coming at something else. Some of you geeks in the room, you ever read Ender's Game? Now, now that I've said that, you're going to raise your hand. Anybody ever read Ender's Game or see the film? Some of you? Yeah. Ender's Game, it's about this like eight-year-old kid that demonstrates this amazing facility with being able to do war simulations and he can kind of direct troops and things like that. You know, it's kind of like sim war, whatever that one is now. And um, the guy that wrote it, Orson Scott Card, he got all this feedback from, from teenagers and 20-somethings thanking him for writing the story about this eight-year-old kid that just sort of would get bullied around and beat up and yet he would just so show his prowess in these war simulations. And, and one of the one of the people that wrote to him um, wrote this in, in a letter of thanks for having written the novel. He said this, All of our lives, we've been unconsciously living by the philosophy that the only way to gain respect is doing so well that you can't be ignored. The desire for greatness and what is their means to it? To do whatever they could to show the world you can't ignore me. The desire is understandable. It's self-evident. But to borrow a line from a poet named Christian Wyman, who's from my home state, he said this, 
So long as your ambition is to stamp your existence on existence, your nature on nature, your ambition is corrupt. You're pursuing a ghost. Here's your own little existential self-reflective question right now. Are you trying to stamp your ambition? If your ambition is to stamp your existence on existence, your nature on your nature, how's that working for you? This is our problem. And it's all summarized in that word that, that, that the disciples are trying to seek. They're wanting to be great. That's the problem. It's everybody's problem. So what's the solution? Jesus offers us a, if you will, paradoxical solution. Where he goes is not to come at those that want to be great. He would say this, if you want to be first, you must be last of all and a servant of all. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. He's saying the paradoxical path. Let's, let's back up for a minute. What's a paradox? A paradox is, is, is two ideas that seem totally incompatible with one another, but the more you think about mo- either, you, the more you realize they both hold. You don't know how they fit together, but they go together somehow. And Jesus is offering us that paradoxical path by saying, if you want to be great, stop trying. If you want to be first, your life has to have as its center something else other than you pursuing your greatness. It has to have an outward focus, a self-denying posture. It's kind of like what Paul speaks of about Jesus in Philippians 2 where he says, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Which is what he just repeats also to another letter to the church at Rome. In Romans 15 he says this, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Why? To build him up. Your greatness is found in doing something other than seeking your greatness. And let's be very clear here. Jesus is not just saying, stop it. Don't try to be great. He's saying, find your greatness instead in something else. And what you're to find it instead is to find, use your influence, your good, for the advantage of someone other than yourself. You all have influence of a different kind. You all have responsibilities and, and prestige or, or importance in different ways. How you use that is critical, Jesus says. If you are using it for others' advantage, you're starting to get it. Look, if you have grown up in the church or in Western civilization, it's already encoded into some of the things that are already structures in our existence. If you are in a position of responsibility in government, what are you known as by a number of other monikers? One is you're known as a public servant. Our, our British friends, our Canadian friends, if you're in Parliament, part of their Congress, what are you? You're a minister. You're a minister. You are a servant. And encoded into your life, into your responsibility, is this interest, this responsibility to use your influence for the advantage of others. And yet, look, you and I both know and maybe perhaps even more acutely in these last couple of years, ourselves included, 
in too many ways and in too many places and in too many times you see people using what influence they have, what power they have for the advantage of one person in particular, themselves. It's for their own advantage that they seek. Now they may say all sorts of things that it's for the advantage of others. We kind of know better. And that's why Jesus will say there, late in that passage, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise over authority over them. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. It will not so be with you that you will allow your influence to be used for your own advantage. So let's be really, really clear about what Jesus is saying there. He's not saying avoid influence. He's not saying avoid power. He's not saying avoid office. He's just warning us that whenever those things become part of you, too often they lead to one fatal pitfall, and that is you capitalize on the authority and influence that you have, and you end up using it for one person's purpose and their good only, your own. The paradoxical path to greatness is this. Greatness lies in a greater interest in somebody else's greatness. That's the path. That's where you go. But that's not, I mean, that's a great idea, right? And we, we, we might make embroidery about it. We might put it on a t-shirt. We might have it on a screensaver. Fabulous stuff. But you can't just sort of trick your will into saying, I'm going to seek other people's greatness. There has to be something deeply embedded within you. There has to be this inner disposition to kind of prompt you to act in that way. And that's why Jesus, in the middle of his little sit-down session with his disciples, he brings out a kid. And he puts the kid front and center. And we're going to be at a little object lesson here. And he says, whoever receives this child receives me. Now, there's a part of us that goes, what's the problem? You know, big deal. He, brought a, he brings a kid out of the open. My kid's the center of everybody's attention. Different world. Different world. There was no scrapbook. There was no gender reveal party. Why do you think is it when, when, when the kids show up to kind of come after Jesus, what's the disciples' first instinct? Shoo, shoo, don't bother him. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Let them come to me. These are the ones to whom the kingdom belongs. What's he getting at there? Why does he, why does he put this kid in front of all of them to make a point about it, what it means to the path to greatness? He says, when you receive one like this, you receive me, which means this. You are adopting the heart of a child if you would follow me. The heart of a child who really is not impressed with your credentials, couldn't read your resume if they tried, don't even know how to spell the word influence. You tell a kid, okay, you're going to be in charge of 500 people this week. Their first question will be, okay, uh, what will we eat? <laughs> right? There, there is no glimmer in their eye about this is going to look awesome on a resume. There is no uh, calculating impulse in their hearts to go, man, I can milk this trajectory for all it's worth. They don't care. They don't care. They are unimpressed by so much of what you and I are impressed with. That's why Jesus puts this kid in front of them. He says, if you're going to follow me, if you want to find your paradoxical path to greatness, embrace them, embody them. 
Because when you do, you will discover a kind of freedom that they live in that we then sort of cast off because we are adult. I want to show you a, a clip that I've shown you before. It's, it's from a movie entitled Dave. Uh, the president has had a stroke and uh, so that the powers that be don't allow the country to descend into chaos. They keep that, that news um, quiet and they go out and search for somebody that looks exactly like the president to stand in as the president and to pretend to be the president. And, and so in this scene, and, and not even the first lady knows that her husband has had a stroke. But in this scene, the president, the fake president, is there at an event that the first lady is leading, and it's all about helping children. And this president demonstrates a kind of concern that kind of catches her eye because that's not how the president usually acts. One of the things that happens when kids become homeless is they start to lose some communication skills. So here at Helping Hand, they play a lot of games that encourage the kids to relate to each other and to express themselves. Oh, no. Poor Joe. He has no hair. Oh, no. Poor Joe. He has no eyes. Right. Very good. Very good. Let's try one more. Everybody together now. Give me everybody. Pay attention. Here we go. Oh, no, poor Joe. He has no feet. Great, great, great. All right. Hi there. What's your name? David. David? Great name. What are you doing over here, David? Nothing. Guys, not now. Okay? Thanks. Don't you like playing games with the other kids? No. Do you like magic? It's okay. It's okay? Watch this. Where'd it go? The answer is in this riddle. What can run all day without ever getting tired? Do you know? I'll give you a hint. It's not your ear. And it's not your mouth. My nose. Your nose, exactly. And look, oh, there it is. See, it was there all the time. See, it went up in the air. And fell on my nose. Yeah. Is the first lady still there? Mm-hmm. she look mad? Mm, not really. Good. The first thing I think is, you touched his nose! Don't touch his face! Um, <laughs> he's the leader of the free world, as they like to say. American exceptionalism, whatever. He doesn't care, and he doesn't want to record it. It's not about the photo op. It's not about being seen. It's about the kid. The influence that he has is entirely unimportant to him, and I think that is a small picture of this paradoxical path to greatness. He is seeking the advantage of another, and he is uninterested in either holding or grasping or displaying his authority. 
He is simply interested in using what he has to get there. That's the paradoxical path. And if I might add one other element to that paradoxical path, it's this. There may be suffering involved to walk in that way. The little exchange between Jesus and John, James and John, you know, they, can we have that seat at the table? And, and Jesus says, um, I, don't, I don't think you know what you're asking. Are you going to drink my cup and, and, and have the baptism that I, I have? And they said, oh, yeah, we're in. You know, kind of like Frodo, uh, I'll carry the ring, right? No problem. And Boromir says, you don't simply walk into Mordor. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. The cup, the baptism, they're, they're kind of they're two metaphors smushed together to suggest this. Suffering for the sake of judgment. The judgment will fall upon him, and he will suffer to bear that judgment. And though James and John will not suffer to the same extent and for the same reasons, they will suffer also for the same good. And that will be part of their paradoxical path to greatness. Um, I ask you rhetorically, don't raise your hands. How many of you have lost friends in the last two years? And I don't mean lost friends in death. I mean just lost friends. I mean, they were your friends. Stuff happened. And if they are your friends, they're not much. Or they're not around. And they're not speaking. And I, I don't want to draw too tight of an analogy between suffering and that experience. And I also don't want to necessarily ennoble the fact that you're no longer friends. For all you know, it's your fault. But if you've had that experience in the last two years, then you know what it feels like to feel bewildered and having lost something and wondering if you'll ever get it back. If you would walk in the paradoxical path to greatness, you can't be shocked if you take losses for your desire to identify with him and walk in his way. And if you try at every pass to prevent that from happening, you misunderstand the path to greatness. That's the path. There's suffering that goes along with it oftentimes, and in places far flung across this world, that, that experience is far more explicit between their identification with Jesus and the experience that they have. It's why Paul says in Colossians 1, he says this, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is the church. He is taking it on the chin. He's taking it on the back. He's taking it on the head. Why? For the advantage of those for whom Jesus has come to rescue. And we hear that, and we're quieted by that. We might even be impressed by that. But we really want to wonder... What really motivates that? What's behind that? Because there's a lot of people you and I know that are willing to suffer because they've got a, a death wish or a heroic complex. What has to motivate this paradoxical path to greatness? It's the last thing I want to say. Martin Luther, in a famous essay he wrote to Pope Leo the Eleventh, I think he wrote this at the beginning of the freedom of a Christian. He said this, a Christian is an utterly free man, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is an utterly dutiful man, servant of all, subject to all. There's a paradox. He's 
He's free, utterly free, and yet a servant, if not a slave, to all. How do they go together? We've kind of already focused on the second. He is focused on how all of us are called to serve. That we are servant to all. Why? Because of what Jesus says in the last three verses of our passage. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's the motivation? Because he's the model. And if he suffered to serve, and we are his, and a servant is not greater than his master, then his lot is ours. We follow in humility to the fact that he is Lord. That's our model. And, and before you hear that idea of, of modeling Jesus and, of, and having a life of service that you need to come up with sort of this form of service that's on this grand scale, how about you just start with serving your friends? How about you just think about who in your life that is a friend that is in need of help? Spouses. How about you just think about who is, who, who, what does my spouse need that I might be able to help? Kids, you're part of a family. Perhaps the, the model of Jesus in your life is really to say, this is my people. This is who I serve. And, and while we're talking about family, what about this family? There's a billion ways you can serve here. If you're over there during this hour, you are not just serving the children of our church. You're serving the future of the church. You're serving the covenant. If you work back in the, in the cafe, you're not just serving coffee. You're serving a context in which warmth and welcome exist. Here's your SAT word of the day. You're serving the conviviality of our people. Where strength and hope and help is found in connecting and enjoying each other's company. If you serve alongside the diaconate in some of our mercy efforts, you're not just serving the community, though you're doing that. What you're serving is the very validation of our faith. We desire our, work, our, our body to grow, but not just so that we're joining and growing the club. When you serve this community, you're actually validating the faith of which you espouse. He's our model. But he's more than our model. In fact, if he's only our model, we're, st we're in deep. He's not just our model. He's what accomplished something for us that we cannot do ourselves. He was a ransom for us. What's a ransom? It's a price paid to rescue you from a condition you could not rescue yourselves from and at great cost to the one who paid it. And for Jesus to do that, he does so with his blood. He does so for our sake. To rescue us from the guilt of our sin from the corruption that lies within, a corruption that is so primarily focused on one thing, the obsession with making ourselves great. And you can't free yourself from that. And at his cost, he's come to rescue us from those conditions that we might be free. That's the gospel. That's what we'll say every week. He has come to be a ransom for us such that, yes, he is a model for us, but what really fuels our ability to imitate him is gratitude for what he has done for us that we could not do for ourselves. Viktor Frankl survived the Holocaust, 
lived to tell about his experience that is harrowing every time you read his story, his book, The the Man's Search for Meaning. And one of the lessons he had to go through the Holocaust to remember or to learn was this about success and about happiness, which I think maps well onto this question about greatness. He said this, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's dedication to a cause greater than oneself or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. Happiness must happen, and the same holds for success. You have to let it happen by not caring about it. Where do you find the resources to walk in that way? Jesus. He has called you to forget yourself, to be concerned more with those that are outside yourself, but to do so not just because it's good for you, but because of what good he has done for you. That has to be the motivation. You serve not to gain his favor, but because you believe you've had it. How does all of that distill down into one simple idea? There is a certain restaurant, a fast food place that you may have heard of, where every time they deliver something to you, they say, my pleasure. And, and sometimes you want to go, is it? <laughs> but whether that's part of the training or just sort of the culture, it's right there at their lips at their fingertips, my pleasure. What does it mean to take to heart what Jesus is saying in these passages to the disciples and to us? It is one question that should always be at the forefront of our mind when it comes to being thinking of this body and whenever we leave this body, and it's this question, how can I help? If that's not a question that comes to mind when you hit this floor or this room, it's time to remember, how can I help? help. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you got to be helped. My friend Jim is going to need to be helped in big ways going forward, but I will tell you this, his desire to help is undiminished. Would that I would have the same heart were I in similar circumstances. How can I help? It is the heart of the one who knows that they have been helped by the only one who could help him in that way.